Send your voice clip and CV to music at capitalfm.moscow. The latest news now. Moscow's only English-speaking hit music station. Capital FM. News. Police have been searching Kursky railway station in central Moscow after a caller reported a bomb had been placed there. The anonymous call was made in the early hours of the morning and the station was evacuated immediately. More than a thousand passengers were forced to leave it. After a thorough search, police found nothing suspicious and say the phone tip was a hoax. Muscovites prefer Japanese cars. A survey conducted by an analytical agency says every fourth vehicle registered in the capital is a Japanese brand. However, 20% of all cars driving on Moscow's roads have a German origin, while every sixth vehicle in Moscow is a Russian brand. There are over 3.7 million cars registered in the city. White-breasted hedgehogs at Moscow Zoo have woken up from hibernation. Authorities say the animals have gone into deep sleep three months ago. Bears, groundhogs, chipmunks and raccoons will wake up from hibernation soon. Last spring, the animals woke up two weeks earlier due to unusually warm weather. Today is the warmest day in Moscow since the start of the spring. The temperature reached 9.6 degrees Celsius in some parts of the city. Weather forecasters say things are going to warm up in Moscow at the weekend. Daytime temperatures for Saturday and Sunday are expected to exceed 15 degrees Celsius. And finally, the dollar has added 22 kopecks against the Russian currency, with the euro adding 4. The official exchange rate for Thursday for a dollar is 57.76 rubles. One euro will cost 70.96. 13 degrees Celsius in Amsterdam, 3 in Beijing, 10 in New York. Partly cloudy and up to 6 degrees Celsius are expected in Moscow tomorrow. That's about 42 Fahrenheit. That's all from me this hour. Dmitry Shulga in the studio. Bye for now. With Alan Moore. Good evening and welcome to Capital Sports on Moscow's Capital FM. I hope you've all missed us the last couple of weeks since we've been on a short wee break. Well, there's been so much to say in the last little while that we will not fit it into a single hour of radio. However, we're going to give it a real old go. Uh, this show, of course, is going to be an exclusive. We have the sports journalistic legend who brought about the, you know, the downfall of Lance Armstrong, Mr. Paul Kimmich. He is with us for a one-to-one. Um, we tease you, of course, about this a uh, couple of weeks ago, but now on our first anniversary of Capital Sports here on Moscow's Capital FM, we're going to satisfy your desire for the best sports interviews on radio. But before we get to Paul, we have a little bit of news to catch up on that uh, is going to be a bit important as the season rolls on here in Russia. Now, Lokomotiv, they lost a little bit of initiative last uh, Saturday when they threw away a half-time lead to lose 2-1 at home to the kind of home side Amkar Perm. Now, that's a story in itself. However, now 
there is a case to say that the Lokomotiv players were a bit unsettled by the change in venue and, of course, the quality of the opposition, but they've simply made their title run just that little bit more difficult. Now, they still have a two-point lead and a game in hand, but that's not going to matter a jot if they don't get three points this weekend at home to FC Rostov. This Sunday, kick-off at the Erzade Arena is at 4.30 and tickets can be bought at the gate. Now, if there's a match to take in this weekend, it's going to be this one because we will be there with the Capital Sports Stadium show. Spartak, who are in second place, they were handed a fairly easy win against Tosno last weekend and on Sunday they won't be expected to slip up Well, they're down uh, playing Angie in Makhachkala. That kicks off at 7.30, so they will know that if Lokomotiv slip up, they will be back in first place by Sunday night, Monday morning. Well, on Monday it's Derby Day in the capital yet again when Siska, they play host to Dinamo at 7.30 out of the VEB Arena. Right now, it's tightly set up for the championship with three Moscow clubs leading the way. Loco top on 49 points. Spartak, they are second and happy with 47, though they have a game played more than Lokomotiv. And, of course, Siska, who are in third place, they're three points further back. Zenit and Krasnodar, they're not just making up the numbers. They're fourth and fifth, and they'll be battling for third place. Spartak, as we know, have fired another coach, Igor Shalimov, and they've put as a caretaker coach the very, very successful youth trainer, Murad Musayev. So, while the club has a lot to recommend it with great facilities and players and so on, would you want to work for Mr. Galitsky? Mr. Galitsky, that is not me touting for a job. Dinamo, they are looking likely to beat the drop right now. They're in 11th place, tied on points with Ahmad Grozny, who are in 10th. And they do have a game on hand over four of the five clubs below them. Now, they'll be hoping that Lokomotiv do them a favour on Sunday by beating Rostov, because Rostov are in 12th place and have 27 points also. So, one interesting little side story that has been kind of growing a little bit and getting a bit of rightful attention is that of Artyom Big Daddy Juba, who was on loan from Zenit at Arsenal Tula. Now, the Russian international striker, he is, you know, he's a bit upset because on the 22nd of this month, his Tula team are playing Zenit. Now, he can only play against Zenit if he pays money to Zenit. A bit strange, I know. So, it makes very, very little sense. And, of course, in England, they do forbid players from lining it against their, or their parent club, except if in the contract, the rental contract clause, it's written in. So, it has to be agreed uh, otherwise. But here in Russia, there is no such rule. And... The player can play if he gives a few quid to his owners. Again, like I said, it makes little sense. It's not very, very fair. And it's kind of against the human spirit, or well, the, the, the spirit of sport and the human right to work. And uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat about this next week with an expert in this area. Now, European football got back into full swing this week. Last night saw two away wins and a decent strike. Well, a great strike, but a decent strike from Mr. Cristiano Ronaldo, who scored two goals in that game. His side, Real Madrid, they veni vidi vicied in Turin last night against Ju- Juve, Juventus, and have a 3-0 lead for the return leg next week in the Bernabeu. Bayern Munich, they won away 2-1 against Sevilla, and again, they look favourites to go through to the semi-finals. So I think we have our first two semi-finals already set up in Real and Bayern. Tonight, however, there are two very, very big clashes in the Champions League quarterfinals. Barcelona, they are hosting Roma, and Liverpool are playing Man City. Now, Liverpool, of course, their coach, uh, Jurgen Klopp, spoke yesterday of just going out and giving a bit of a rattle. Like, you know, he's, he's not putting pressure on his players, and, of course pressure on himself they've done well to get this far uh, however of the two sides Liverpool do have those five European Cups or well Champions League titles as are now known to their name 
yet Pep Guardiola he has won two as a coach and of course I think he's won one as a player as well um, his club on the other hand Manchester City they have to go all the way back to 1970 when they last won a European trophy that was the uh, European Cup Winners Cup which is of course no longer um, in existence so can history help Liverpool tonight will it help them will Pep blow a fuse well you know this is going to be the match worth, worth watching tonight don't worry about Roma and Barcelona that's of little consequence Roma are not there to make up the numbers but no one's really going to be watching that because tonight at 10.45 you really need to tune in to Liverpool and Man City now tomorrow night in the Europa League at 11.05 all Russian eyes well most Russian eyes well my eye well I'm Irish okay but my eyes will be on events over in the Emirates Stadium in London where Arsenal are hosting Siska Moscow now of course this is the first leg of a quarter-final and, you know, a goal away from home would set up next week's match perfectly for the Army men, though in all reality they are facing one of the two potential winners uh, of this competition, the European Athletic Madrid, who we saw in action in, um, in, in Lokomotiv. And I mean, even though they had beaten Lokomotiv by half-time, they did not take their foot off the Lokomotiv's throats. And, uh, well, listen, Oswald says, Godspeed, Siska. Right. Now, uh, the... First part of our exclusive that I'm going to lead into right now. Where do I start? Well, uh, well, first I want to say that to hello to you, Catherine, who's in Paris right now. She's gallivanting off in Gay Paris and having fun. She's listening to this, of course, and many people around the world are listening to this uh, live broadcast tonight because this is something that's you know going to open your ears and make you think. Because we do have, as I said, this journalistic legend, uh, Paul Kimmage, and I don't know how to start this intro because um, you know I want to damn him. For ruining my childhood and possibly my final school exams as well. I could have done so much better if it wasn't for him and his book. Um, because just before I was about to sit my leaving cert, my final exams in Ireland, I bought a book in uh, Easton's, a big, big uh, you know, bookshop on O'Connell Street in the centre of Dublin, and it's called Rough Ride. Now, it was by a cyclist I knew, Paul Kimmage, and it was kind of all the rage at the time, but, you know, people were kind of going, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I think he's just kind of bitter, and he's like, you know, he just he's a failed pro, which, you know, you hear very, very often when someone is a genuine whistleblower or someone who wants to open open the lid on what's going on in the, the, the barrel of filter sports, as it's also known. Now, in this book, he described how he'd taken PEDs, amphetamines, and, um, well, caffeine tablets as well, and uh, also his life on the road and his career as as a, a pro cyclist, amateur to pro cyclist. I mean, it's a great read even in of itself. Now, by writing, he lost a lot of friends, but regained something that he seemed to have lost along the way to the peloton. He was twice amateur champion of Ireland. He competed at the 1984 Olympics. He finished sixth in the World Amateur Cycling Championships. And so going pro with such a pedigree, you know, it was a natural step and many people expected he would be the next great Irish cyclist. We already had two at the top table, as in Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach. And with him and Martin Early, also from Dublin, going through, it really looked like Ireland were set for, you know, at least another generation. Um, so what happened next? Well, he rode for then two big teams of the tour, RMO and Fager. In Fager, he rode alongside the Irish hero, Stephen Roach. He was part of the Irish team, uh, the cycling team that catapulted Stephen to gold in the World Championships in Villach in 1987. And then he quit in 1989. So it was very, very strange. Then he wrote a book, became a full-time sports journalist, and is probably one of the finest writers and interviewers, not just in the world of sports, but anywhere. Um, you know, and I explained why he ruined my childhood, or I, I believe he did. You know, I'd grown up believing in sports, and that sports were everything. That my heroes, whether they be in the GAA, in football, rugby, boxing, cycling, you know, they were just that. They were heroes. They were infallible. 
Um, these people I looked up to, men and women, you know, they were just superstars and above that, you know, they were gods and goddesses. And, uh, you know, yet when Sean Kelly and Martin Early pulled out of 1991 Tour de France, um, and my having read the book just before that, I was devastated because I had to ask the question, why did they pull out? And the reason was they were using drips to take food intravenously and they got sick from that. And this was all part of their Dutch teams uh, called PDM. They're ployed to make the riders betters, better. Now, Sean Kelly was a cycling god. Martin lived in my town, and I often saw him out training, like riding in the roads in my hood in Blanchestown. And, of course, we had mutual friends of our family. So, back to Paul and the interview. So, just strap yourselves in, sit back, and listen. Because this is something that I think we, we all need to, take to, to, to go on this journey together. So, I began by asking, I just... Why just 27? Just coming into his prime as a cyclist. Did he retire in 1991? So I made a decision I was going to stop. Uh, and I rode a tour in 89, my last tour. And at 13 stage, I climbed off. And then I kind of had a decision to make because obviously my perception of life as a pro, as a kid and as a young adult was very different to the reality. And the reality was that you really could not compete at the highest level without reaching the crossroads which was the crossroads being am I going to dope am I going to dope and I'd reached that crossroads and I'd made a decision and I just felt there was something wrong with sport that you actually couldn't fulfil your dreams without uh, making this decision that you were forced into this position and for me the, there were there were things that weren't being done that would have made that would have taken that decision out in other words the authorities weren't doing they didn't give you about doping and this needed to be pointed out because again the public oh, oh this this great show this Tour of France these heroes yes it is a great event they are heroes but they were forced they were being forced corralled into making this decision that was fundamental to where they were going to exist as a pro or not and I thought okay well I love this sport but it has a problem I'm going to address the problem so before I started work as a full-time rider with Sunday Tribune, I decided I was going to take a couple of months off. I was going to write a book that was going to expose the problem and was going to solve the problem. And did you really think it would solve the problem? Oh, I did. Well, I, I thought that I, I thought that the, the logic and the arguments in it were so strong that it would uh, that it would certainly make it better. It would certainly make it better. So that was the motivation to write the book, to kind of to speak out, um, to see, you know. You know what, 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 like what was the problem? And uh, of course, I, you know, as Catherine asked me then, why didn't he dope? You know, he comes from a cycling family. Surely he knew about that. And um, you know, and as he told me about like briefcases, briefcases have a very different meaning in uh, office life and in cycling. Uh, that's a good question, and it's a logical question. Uh, I wish I could give you a logical answer to really explain. To really explain that, and I'll go back to the 1987 Tour de France. So in the 1987 Tour of France, my second tour as a pro, uh, I've got the team doctor who calls me in uh, on, I think it was the day of the rest day in Po. It's early in Po. I remember the hotel. I remember the moment. And he wants to give me testosterone and cortisone. And I'm saying, no, I don't want any of that. I'm not doing any of that. I know what it is. I know what it'll do for me. Boy. I'm just, I'm just not going. I'm just not going down that road. I'm not going down that road. You say, you ask why. Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, you keep hearing about this grey area. We keep hearing about the grey area. Now, 
If I could have taken that testosterone and I could have used that cortisone, I would never have tested positive. Never have tested positive. But I knew there was a line here and I was crossing it. And the line was doping. And I don't care. I don't care who you are or what you've done or where you are or what your sport is, but everybody, everybody knows the line and they know the moment they crossed it and it could be argued and I would not make a counter argument that even in the 86 tour when I'd reached into the back pocket and taken out a caffeine tablet that my swanier had given me on the stage to off the west this one you're being the mas mas masseur or the swanier the masseur yeah, yeah masseur yeah the masseur yeah. masseur had given me a caffeine tablet again not a problem, not illegal. It could be argued that that was doping, and of course it was. Absolutely it was. And even in doing that thing and putting caffeine down in my mouth, that was, that was doping. It was a form of doping I could justify with myself and I could live with. Uh, I could not justify, for whatever reason, taking testosterone or cortisone. You know... It's, it's that justification, you know, like, you know, that he did take things, and he will discuss it now in just a moment. He did take things, and as Catherine said, you know, did he regret, you know, not doping, you know, and what she said, like, you know, did he wish he doped? I was like, no, he's no regrets, and, you know, that he, you know, as, 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 as a Radiohead claim, you know, or the country would claim that the drugs do work. Now, after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to discuss more about Leo, his, uh, you know, his exit from the sport. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of sadness there. And I mean, as again, the people that he, he, he lost, especially from that like wonderful time in 1987 when, when Ireland was the very, very pinnacle. Was that the pinnacle of war cycling? And, um, however, you know, to liven up things just a little bit, we're going to go a bit rock. This is going back a bit retro. Uh, this is something that's heard at sports events everywhere, and most recently I heard it at a Shamrock Rovers match in uh, Dublin when I was home. So this is Elton John and Crocodile Rock. Capital Sports with Alan Moore.
special guest. Hey, this is Becky Hayes. Listen to the BCM Radio Show every Friday on Capital FM Moscow 105.3. Every Friday at 1am on Capital FM Moscow. I like the way you do your... Welcome back to Capital Sports on Moscow's Capital FM here in the wonderful studios in a kind of a spring-like Moscow this lovely Wednesday evening. Of course, Wednesday night, I should say. It's nine o'clock. And when we exit the studio, we're going straight down to watch the Liverpool-Man City Champions League quarter-final. Now... Back to the exclusive with Paul Kimmage. I mean, we're very, very honoured to have this man who has given his time and his thoughts to us and a lot of very, very, you know, brutal and clear answers. So, again, sit back, strap in, listen to this because it is well worth a listen. So, you know, um, this next little part is about, you know, did he regret, did he regret not doing doping uh, because he, he does know that the drugs do work, as he tells us. Um, and of course, he was part of a great Irish team in 1987 at the World Championships, uh, which won gold. And yet, there's a bit of sadness around that, like wonderful memory, that like your know, great peak of his memory in his whole life, his cycling career, that you know that has been now lost forever. So here we go. And I went into the hotel room, and uh, everybody, all of my teammates, are taken out amphetamines before we go down to the start because these. That was the thing about it. it the culture at the time was that the uh, post-tour races, these Criterion races, everybody was using the phone. Now, it doesn't make sense. You'd say, well, if the, if it's fixed and we know who's going to win, why would you use amphetamines? Put on a show. Put on a show. It was all about putting on a show. And I was offered this by a teammate and I said, right, f*** it. I'm going to give this a go. Was the first time you'd met amphetamines? That was the first time I'd used amphetamines. And I had, at the time now, you know, France was very distant country there was no internet no email no Skype any of that stuff I used to write letters to my, my girlfriend Anne at the time my parents so I'd write letters I used to keep my correspondence in a, in a small little briefcase I remember arriving to this racing show lay with my little briefcase and all the guys all my teammates having a good laugh about this I didn't get the joke I didn't get why are they, what are they laughing about? what's so funny about this and then that night I'm sharing with, uh, with one, of my, one of my teammates and he's got a briefcase too and he opens his briefcase up, and his briefcase is full of vials and pills. And this is where all of the guys stored their their drugs, the doping. They all brought their doping around in a little briefcase. So he opens this up, and now suddenly I get the joke. They think, oh, this young Irish kid, he knows the game. You know, he's only a wet day in the sport, but he knows how it works. But I'm opening mine up, and there's letters and pens. Yeah, a Parker pen. And he's got the full armory of what he's going to use for the race the next day. But anyway, I don't regret it. And I don't regret it for the reason that it allowed me to understand the power of these drugs. I mean, these, these things work. They really work. I mean, I started that, that I went into that race that day in, in Chino Field, and, you know, I just came out of two of feeling fairly low. Um, Morally, physically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And within 40 minutes of taking this thing, it run through a wall. So the, the drugs work. It was a great experience, yeah. It was a great experience. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I was very close to Stephen and very close to Sean and Martin. And uh, that was a very nice day in my career uh, and a very nice experience. Now, unfortunately, you know, obviously the decision I, I then took to, to try and change the doping culture, you know, 
I mean, the point you make about it's always the failed cyclist, well, if, you know, of course, it is, unfortunately. That doesn't mean the mot- mot- motives are wrong or that they're not telling the f- truth, but let's face it, you know, someone who wins the Tour de France and has put seven million in his pocket is not going to come out and say, you know what, hey, folks, hey, this is all f- You know what, you want to look, I believe what I had to take to do this. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. So, as you said, he quits in 1989. Uh, the book comes out in 1990. Um, and, you know, I asked him how hard was it for him to come back to the sport, come back to the tour, which he did as a journalist in 1990, and he had some very, very negative reactions. Of course, that was all to change in 1998 with the Festina affair, where there were drugs found as they were coming in. Um, but it's, you know, it's very, very, you know, difficult. And, of course, there was this negative reaction from French uh, cyclists, as, as he will explain. Um, now, how were the Irish towards him? Well, I mean, as he said, like, you know, he and Steve and Roach were like brothers. They really worked close. They cycled everywhere together. They, they went hustling together and the whole lot. And they rode in the same team in his last year. Um, and, you know, even though he wanted to clean up the sport for the good of it, he got a very different reaction uh, from Stephen Roach, who he, he felt, you know, was like his... As a, as as close as a brother what, uh, could be for him, and uh, also uh, he got kind of like kind of a no reaction from the other pro cyclists at the time. So let's just have a listen to this. Well, I mean, it's no different to not no different to going back to the tour in '91. No, '1990 was my first tour as a journalist. So I did rough ride in May. and I went back effectively to face the music in in July. I mean, I knew I was going to get it tough reception but I wanted to go back there and say I'm not listening this is it this is the truth I'm not f***ing hiding were you snubbed? I got a hard time (laughs) define hard time I I define hard time by I define hard time by someone you admire a friend who walks up to you before the start of one of the stages and almost spits in your face and you know insults you we don't need to ask the, the name. Well, well it was Terry Clever at all that. It was, you know, someone... Uh, who be, was a French, French, French yeah. yeah, now deceased uh, in really tragic circumstances. But, you know, Terry was a great friend, a really great friend. And, um, you know, he hadn't actually been able to read the book because it was never... In front. All he was getting was the rumours of what, I, what it said. And, of course, this was... He regarded this as a betrayal. It was certainly the case with Stephen. Um, and Sean just uh, said nothing about it, and Martin was the same. They just, they just decided they were going to say nothing about it, which was all I would have asked of them, could have asked of them, because uh, I was obviously making life difficult for all of them. But Stephen came out and tried to pretend this was all lies, and that was a betrayal as well. So that was very tough. That was very, very. Tough. You were close to him. Very, very close to Stephen. Yeah. So of course, you know, he he lost, uh, as we said at the very very top of the show, he lost friends, he lost uh, brothers, he lost people who he, you know, loved and still loves, uh, who wanted to deny that there was any issues in the sport whatsoever. Uh, and of course, in Ireland itself, it it really has made us well. It's opened our eyes on like what went on that time, and now we kind of don't, you know, believe. It. Now he's going to explain that, like uh, how. These great sites, these great athletes should be held up, but yet people now just like neglect them. Um, you know, and as it now, as it now uh, is beginning in Russia, that a lot of people are starting to ask questions. So, in one way, he was the fall guy, he was the first person to uh, lift the lid, um, but there have been uh, a fairly positive knock on effects as time has gone on, as he explains to us here. I don't have to explain that. I mean, you look at you look at now at you know these things they do over here. Ireland's greatest sportsman, Ireland's greatest sporting achievement. I mean, you're not going to find Roach on any of those lists. 
And that's absurd in itself. Given but 87 alone. And oh, Sean Kelly as well for being one of the most dominant well, more than one for more than one for five years. And yet, in these box pops of they do with people, they don't, they don't appear in them. And that's how they've suffered. But I think, you know, there's been, a, it's a, there's been a very slow awakening in terms of the public to the realities of, of, of pro sport. Um, but people are far more clued in now than they were when Rough Ride was published in 1990, let's put it like that. Now, last year, and even this year, when we were speaking with, uh, say, for example, Andy, Andy Farmer or Killian Kelly or when Maxim was ever here in the studio, uh, you know, we were discussing... You know, doping in British cycling with Froome and Wiggins, and of course, uh, you know, I'd been hammered for for writing about it and asking questions of like how come British cycling suddenly took off, and that of course, uh, when I was just back in Ireland not long ago, when this whole report on Bradley Wiggins broke out, um, and of course, the, the questions raised over Chris Froome. Now we've discussed this with Paul on and off the record, and you know what he said off the record was almost identical what he said on the record which is very very unusual for a sports journalist or a sports person in any case uh, and he didn't hide his disdain for uh, a man who uh, you know he, he look for a man who's who's who suffered for telling the truth uh, Paul was very unequivocal about both these great uh, British well heroes as the years have gone by now because now there are controls and now now we do understand there are things you should not do and that line is is you know People are trying to enforce that line, and you know. Government. So my attitude definitely has changed now to before. Like before, in when I was there, there was no f-ing angels and, and demons for me at the time. Now they fucking are angels. Now, the, now the, the angels are the guys who decide. You know what? I'm not f-ing doing it. I'm not doing it. So definitely, my attitude has changed towards it. Yeah. I mean, you asked me about Bradley Wiggins and Chris Frill and these guys. Well, they're not going to get much sympathy from me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Zero. They made a choice. They've, they have, you, you know, um, uh, we either want clean sport or we don't. And uh, Bradley Wiggins can't decide that he wants clean sport today. And then, and his, his change of attitude has been spectacular. Absolutely spectacular. You look at talk about the greatest flip flop of all time. So if he'd stood up at the time and and continued saying, Listen, this sport is f-ing nonsense, that gives us a chance. That gives the sport a chance to move on. But for as long as these guys make the choice and decide, you know what, I don't care, I'm filling my boots here, the sport has no chance. And sport has no chance. And Chris Froom can can tell me that he's for clean sport and then have his photograph, picture, pictures taken with his arm around Alexander Vinokurov. See, you can't do that. Now, as Paul, you know, he, he's rightly pointed out, like, you know, the, these guys who say, oh, we're against doping, you know, like uh, Paula Radcliffe holding up, like, you know, EPO cheats out and then she runs the fastest marathon time in the world. Um, you know, the, the, it, it kind of, it, it's self-defeating in a way. But one thing that we have to, because we're in the media, is... The media has to take a bit of blame. Of course, people sitting at home on the couch or going to the stadiums buying tickets, they do have to take a bit of blame as well because we support these people. However, you know, the media should be asking more questions as you know, as we do here on Capital Sports and Capital FM, we're very, very fortunate that we we are allowed not allowed, but we've got great editors and great directors who support our work, just as Paul does as well. So, you know, I wanted to ask him about like, you know, like why are people afraid of blowing the whistle like real whistleblowers who suffer for for what they do 
And the omerta, this like uh, the, this mafia type silence among athletes and among the whole the sports industry. But also an even worse omerta on the people who should be, the fifth estate or the fourth estate, who should be asking questions. And that is, of course, the journalists. So, you know, you know, while he has had apologies for from people who first doubted him over rough ride, uh, it still doesn't take away the pain. But, you know, it, it, it hasn't really moved on in terms of that omerta uh, within the uh, sports journalist fraternity. And we're going to hear about that right now. What if genuinely they think this is a f***ing disgrace? You see, this is the problem, Alan. This is the problem. Now, you've pointed out actually very, very good. Uh, you've made a very good point here. I mean, I look at the reaction now, and it's this isn't something new. This is something that goes and we, we class it as the omerta. I mean, I don't believe for a second that all the guys riding the tour are doping. I, I've never believed that. I mean, I didn't. You know, I didn't. There's a lot of guys in there who are f***ing trying to get it clean. Now, if they stand up and say anything, you're going to get some f***ing asshole saying, "Look at this loser." Look, listen, look at bitter little. Exactly the reaction to me. So, bitter yeah, yeah. so nobody actually, nobody ever wants to hear these guys. Uh, and from the moment they stand up, they get shot at. So you say, well, what about these guys who are on the juice stand up? So, well, you know, I don't believe that's going to happen. It may possibly happen. But it's a deterrent then for anybody to stand up then, if that's the attitude. I mean, I would encourage them, absolutely, and always have, always have encouraged them. But unfortunately, you know, the reaction of the general public is, you know, who are these guys? Yeah, that's unforgivable and unforgivable. This, and there we are. We are complicit. I say we as a, as a, as, a, as a group. Journalists are totally complicit in this problem. Totally complicit because you know. Don't tell me back in 1986 when I went to the tour there weren't guys journalists there who knew what it took to be a pro boy crowder, who knew the level of doping that was going on, and who ignored it. I mean, they're absolutely, they've known it and they've ignored it and they've tried to pretend because again they get rich by this, they enrich themselves by promoting the fairy tale. That's what the public want, that's what the people who buy the newspapers and the magazines want. They want the fairy tale, they want to pick up their papers and say, wow this is great, what a, what, you know, they don't want the reality, they want the fairy tale. So the journalists enrich themselves by this while betraying their profession and we are absolutely totally complicit in this whole mess. How do we fix it as journalists? How, how, how do we get rid of this kind of buddy-buddy fanboys with laptops? Well, again, I think, I think, uh, I think again, that uh, uh, there are far more good writers and good journalists now than there were back, back in the day. So, you know, th- leading off from that, like, you know, there are far more good journalists on the go today. That is true. You know, and we'll, we'll actually mention one of them by name a little bit later on uh, because it is something that you know, journalists, we buy into it, we push it, we, we have this narrative of, oh, it's so wonderful, so wonderful, and we don't ask questions. So when suddenly these, uh, you know, aging tennis stars lose lots of weight, get stronger, get fitter, and seem to win more matches, everyone buys in, oh, it's great they're doing so well. When a, a footballer moves from England to Spain suddenly beefs up and has to get his uh, teeth all you know, corrected, we think, oh, that's great. You know, he's he's working out, he's harder, he's stronger, he's fitter. So, you know, if the media is not going to ask questions and say, I don't believe this, if the media, you know, keep reporting on it as if it's just like a wonderful fairy tale, of course people are going to just buy it. So that's, you know, one issue that, uh, you know, we have to deal with ourselves and hold our hands up and say, listen, you know, this whole fantasy should be pointed out and should be brought to bear. Uh, and 
in that spirit, in terms of fantasy, uh, this is you know kind of a, it was named one of the ultimate grooves by ESPN sports fans. So that tells you something. This is one that's actually an English song, as far as I know. Uh, it's quite old; it's about twenty years old, but it is really, really going to get us into the mood for the third and final section of this exclusive with Paul Kimmage. Um This is a song that's going to make you just relax on this Wednesday night and have fun, and of course get ready for the big Champions League matches later on at ten forty-five. This is US or Us Three and Cantaloupe Flip Fantasia. Capital Sports with Alan Moore. Bye. 
каких бы городах мира мы ни жили, мы всегда стремимся жить на высоте. Клубный небоскреб в Москве Нева Тауэрс. Апартаменты от 15,8 миллионов рублей с беспроцентной рассрочкой. Собственный парк, фитнес, спа, кинотеатр и потрясающие панорамные виды. Стиль жизни мирового класса теперь и в Москве. Подробности 8499-300-0303. Рассрочка предоставляется застройщикам ООО «Эсте Тауэрс». Проектная декларация на неватауэрс.ру With Alan Moore. Welcome back to the third and final part of Capital Sports for this lovely Wednesday evening here in the beautiful studios of Capital FM here in Moscow. We're going to go straight into it again with Paul Kimmich, our exclusive interview with him. So he's going to tell us about how he recovered, how he rose like a phoenix from the ashes of, um, you know, being the number one sports journalist in Ireland to no one even calling him to, to, to do any work and then into his friendship or well the, the fallout between himself and David Washer of course because both of them brought down so much in cycling uh, in terms of doping um, but now they you know they have no further constant two men who phone each other every day whose families knew each other And there's also a touching story of uh, David's son, John, who was killed as he was going home, who Paul was very, very close to. Uh, so he's going to explain how he got back into journalism in 2012 by writing a story that nobody wanted to read, but everybody did. Here we go. I mentioned that Wigan story in 2012, and um, I'm really, really proud of that story because I'd been chaffed by the Sunday Times. That was in the mail, wasn't it? It was in the mail, yeah. yeah. I'd been chaffed by the Sunday Times in January of that year, and I'd been... I suppose seven, seven, eight months unemployed. Signed on in Balbriggan Registry. I'm the best f***ing journalist in the country. Uh, the most renowned journalist. Because I'm reading editorials in, in the Irish Times and the Irish Independent about what a great job I've done on the Lance Armstrong story. And I can't get anybody to give me a f***ing job. So, so you just signed on the dole? I'm signing on the dole. I'm signing on the dole in, in Balbriggan. And uh, I spent seven months. And I didn't get one commission for seven months. Not one f***ing commission. In any type of media? For seven months. I mean, I was offered bits here and there. Buttons. I said, no. So, I didn't get a decent commission for seven months. And then I get a call from the Daily Mail. Wiggins wins the tour. Will you write a piece about this? And I said, yeah, but it may not be what you, you want to you wanna read or want to hear. Just write a poem. So, I write the piece. I send it in. Less known as the sports editor of the Daily Mail. And... Les calls me back. Oh, Jay's, we can't run this. I says, boy, he says, you're saying he's doping. No, I'm not saying he's doping. Read it again, Les. Read it again. So I put the phone down. And Anne is, my wife Anne is uh, outside the door. She knows what's going on. And my son Luke is there. And he knows what's going on. And there's pressure. Well, no money coming in. And there's pressure coming on. And I know they're upset. I know she's upset. And I'm thinking, you f***ing idiot. What the f*** is wrong with you? Why don't you just give him a f***, you know? Good man, Bradley. What a great achievement. The first Britain ever to win a Tour de France. A momentous, a momentous time. Why can't you just give them what they want, take a few quid? Because it was good money. Men pay well. Anyway, half an hour later, Les calls back. You know what, you're right. I think it's a good piece. We're going to run it. And I'm really proud of that because my back was to the wall and I was true to myself. I was true to myself. I didn't buckle at a time when it would have been very easy to buckle. So when I say you think you've got to keep fighting, Despite the pressures, I think that's that's the key. That's an example of it. I think you have to ask David that. I don't want to be fair to ask David because David, David probably doesn't think he did go wrong. I, I think it's obvious that he's made a serious serious error. Uh, David, I mean, you mentioned John, uh, his son who 
died tragically in a cycling accident, boat accident. And he asked, us a, he asked a great question of the baby Jesus and the, the gold and the, the gifts he was given or that were brought to him when he was in the stable in Bethlehem. And how, how come he was poor? He got all this. It's a great question. Well, it was a great question. He asked this in school of his teacher one day. How come they were poor if baby Jesus got all this? But look, David was the best. Anything I've ever learned about this profession, or certainly most of what I've learned, has been from David. Fantastic journalist. Brilliant work on Armstrong. And... You know, I have. I've, I've spoken about what happened after that. I've spoken about what happened when I got shafted by the Sunday Times. And, you know, obviously that was the end of what was a, my closest friendship. I mean, I would have spoken to David every day for 20 odd years. Now, of course, uh, one thing that Paul did bring up as well was that, like, you know, there was a quote further on that book because he, he dedicates a book to John Walsh. But uh, further on the book, he's, he, he uses one of David's sayings never run from the truth. And of course, David has, you know, he's returning to the truth, maybe a little bit too late, but he has returned in terms of Team Sky. Um, but one major, major run-in that uh, Paul had was with the president, a friend of his, who's the, uh, an Irishman, who was the head of the, UN- the UCI, the Union of International Cycling. Um, and that was a long, lonely fight where they basically sued him for uh, asking questions, simply asking questions. And, um, you know, Paul was left on his own. He fought it with support of actually cycling fans and some journalists as well. But, you know, when he talks about the day of wrecking in the court in Switzerland, when he walks into a courtroom, you know, there was a bit of a catch in throat as he, as he was telling me this. Uh, no, none at all. Does that hurt? Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah. Is it fair? I would think not. <laughs> but then, you know, we all see things from our own point of view. You know, is it fair? Is what fair? Is it is it fair that uh, is it fair that people who I raced with sided with Pat McQuaid at a time when he was still me as president of the UCI? Is it is it fair that people in the Irish cycling community sided with Pat McQuaid when he was still me as president of the UCI? Is that fair? I would suggest not. This wasn't in 1998 or 96. Oh, this, no, this was, was this was in the 2000s when it yeah. was known what yeah, was going on. This is after the Armstrong. So this is after Festina. This is after. This Festina. is after. This is much much later. Yeah. So that really uh, that was tough. That was tough to take. And Pat, you know as well. You know as well. Oh, Pat, so, I mean, absolutely. We, we, had a good relationship with Pat. What motivated him to do that? Because it was a very strange well, term. Well, I, I, I will direct you to Pat and uh, <laughs> and. Uh, I let him answer for himself, um, but that was a difficult. That was a difficult time, you know. Listen, and I, in some ways, we come round to the same thing with David. So, I find myself in Switzerland at the end of five years of being chased through the courts by McQuaid and Verbruggen, and I find myself walking into a Swiss courtroom, having stood up for cycling and fought this f-ing battle all my life, an open hearing, and I walk into the courtroom to face the judge. I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, well, where is everybody? Where are all the, all the other journalists? Where is David Walsh? Where is the Irish Cycling Community? Where is anybody in here who's going to stand with me and has come out to support me? F-ing nobody. Not one f-ing pro cyclist. Not one guy who I stood up for. And when I say well, I'm one pro cyclist, not one message of support from any pro rider, and given the stance I'd taken, had been all about them. All about their future and career, and enable, trying to enable make sure that they had a chance of doing this clean. I'm looking around this car and thinking, oh, what was it all about? What was it all about? Not f***ing one of them. So, I don't have a relationship with David, and I don't have a relationship with the Irish Southern community, and I don't have a relationship with Papa Quaid for, the, for that reason. Now, you walk into this car and you think, oh, well, 
Well, where is everybody? Now, of course, Paul won that case, and uh, I know a case he's faced bar one when Lance Armstrong sued him for suggesting that he was doping, and of course, then Paul made that back again in the, in the future that he won second time round. Uh, we went on to talk then about the tennis community, and of course, Maria Sharapova. Uh, because there's questions we've asked here in the show, just like, you know, why are there not questions and so on. So Paul had his own take on the tennis media. The tennis media are the worst. They've got to be the worst of all. Uh, I remember actually having a row with, uh, I was at a wedding in Ireland and a couple of years ago, and one of the guys there was a big tennis player. He was just absolutely appalled at the mere suggestion that any of these tennis players would die. I said, are you f***ing serious? These guys do five-hour sets, crippling heat, they go up the next day and go and do it again. Why would you not, you know, why would there not be doping? I mean, I think it's in actually, uh, it's a guy called uh, Joel Drucker wrote a great, great book about Jimmy Connors. I'm pretty sure it's in the book where he tells a story about Connors being stretched off in Paris after this epic game at Roland Garros and being hooked into any, all these drips and everything and coming out the next day and uh, and then, I don't know whether he won or performing, but, you know, I mean, the Sharapova thing is just, I mean, there you go. It just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really discouraging and really frustrating when you look at Sharapova and everything that's happened around that case. And she goes back to Australia this year and they weed her out. And, you know, look, she's a hero. There's no, no one holding her, account to her, holding her to account for anything. So it's just, uh, it's really frustrating. I get worn down by it, Alan. I got really seriously, I am f***ing worn out by it now at this stage. And that's the problem, you know. It wears you down and saps your enthusiasm and um, I won't ever say you sit back and just say ah, f- it, I don't care anymore but it's tough it isn't it isn't easy you know it isn't easy that's why I'm really enjoying I'm not sure enjoying is the word but I've taken great satisfaction out of uh, what's happening in England now the awakening there some of the columns that have been written recently have been really good because it's always been so f-ing easy for us over here isn't it you know oh the f***ing cheating these germs the f***ing cheating Russians as if somehow they're word differently to us, as if somehow, you know. So it's really nice when the, the, the chickens come home to roost and some of the stories now that we're seeing about what's happening in British sport. Now, of course, I asked him then on the topic of that, because we discussed it off, off, off record, was, you know, should Russia have been banned? And in terms of with Irish rugby, which at that time, was, we won the Six Nations, of course, in the Grand Slam, so things were going great. How could we begin to believe then again in sports? And also, what should we be expecting for our kids in terms of standards? And why should we be giving our kids to these sports, whether it be tennis, whether it be rugby or whatever it is? So, as I said, I start off by asking them, should Russia have been banned from the Olympics? Absolutely, they are right to be banned. Of course they are. Well, what are you going to do? Reward them? You know, this is what they've done. How do you address that? You've got to, there has to be a f***ing penalty. There has to be a f***ing deterrent. Now, it can't just apply to them either. I mean, Fancy Bears has been brilliant. You know, they got a lot of shit, but I think... Wasn't it great that they went in and they exposed the, the hypocrisy at the heart of this? Wiggins especially was oh. the needles. Oh, you know, you know, this is this is this is really great. I mean, I, I think that wow, you know what? That's f-ing great. Because what I'm saying is this: listen, let's let's just dispense with the f-ing bullshit here. And um, you want us to believe your sport is clean? Then open your doors, and I walk in there as a journalist into your dressing room, and you can just show me an audit of all the medical products you've got. And I'll make my mind up as to what is clean sport and what isn't. And my readers will make up their mind as to what is clean sport and what isn't. You just open your doors and you show me how these guys are performing and what they're doing to perform in the way that they do. And we'll make our mind up then about what's clean and what is not clean. But will any of them do that? Will any of them do that? I mean, I think it'd be really fascinating 
to uh, sit down now. We're in the middle of the, the coming towards the end of the Six Nations here, biggest event by far in this country. It'd be really great to sit down with the IRFU doctors and physios and the whole medical team and say, okay, this is what, here's an audit now of all of the stuff we've used to prepare our team and to get our team to this. Lay it all out on the table and we'll see. We'll see what claims board looks like. And what they're saying is, parents, you give us your kids. We'll take it from here. Now what I want them to tell me is, okay, well what are you going to do? What are you going to do with my kid? What happens to him when I give him to you? What are your standards? What are your you know, where do you stand on doping and, you know, oh, you're serious. Okay, so, so you won't have to run into a, a guy who's come from South Africa who's juiced with gills of steroids. Is, is, is that how you look after him or how does that work? Paul mentioned, mentioned uh, fancy bears there, of course, in the conversation. Uh, we also then went on to, to talk about uh, therapeutic use exemptions for like taking these very, very high-powered drugs, uh, which many of these top athletes seem to have, whether they're asthmatics or whatever it may be. Uh, also with fancy bears and sort of moving the goalposts of like, you know, what, what is white, what is black, what is grey. You look at the, I think the anti-doping report came out yesterday. There was more TUEs issued to rugby players here than any other sportsmen. What is that the issue of the TUEs? Alan, how can you say that? How can you say, is that the issue with the TUEs? We've well, just seen how they're f***ing abused in cycling. Of course that's the f***ing yeah. This is the bollocks now we're dealing with. The, the, the goalpost shifts all the time. At the time in 1980 when there was no testing for testosterone or cortisone or anything, there was no f***ing TUEs. You didn't need them. You could dope with impunity. Now suddenly the, the authorities saw that, they tried to address it, and it was... Oh yeah, but here we can do it this way. So the goalpost keeps moving all the time, and you have to keep moving with the goalpost. So you can't say, "What about the TUs?" That's where it's being done now. That's where the new frontier oh. of doping is: TUs and doctors enabling sportsmen to cheat in a different way. That's what happens. The goalpost keeps changing. Because that's we were speaking about that before we, we started recording was that That's what I mean, fancy bears are finding it that, that's what fancy yeah. bears are pointing out. They're saying, Okay, you've come into our backyard and you've shown us, you've shown the world how we do it. Let me we're gonna show the fucking world how you do it. This is how you fucking cheat. You've seen how we cheat, now I'm gonna fucking show you how you fucking cheat. Brilliant. Brilliant. We're going to play out with a song, but before that, uh, Paul has a bit of advice for parents with kids who are involved in sports. Uh, the song, I think you'll enjoy it, and I think it's it's not reflective of a sport. It is definitely, sport is not a super massive black hole, uh, but it can be cleaned up just a little bit more. So here's the last piece from Paul. We'll talk to you next week here on Capital Sports and Moscow's Capital FM. And again, I've got three kids of my own. They're not kids anymore. They're 27, 25. They're young adults now. And, you know, I was always, I always loved that they play sport. I wouldn't want them to be obsessed. I wouldn't want them to pursue sport as a profession. I'd want them to play sport for the love of it, to be as good as they could be, but not to be obsessed by it. I think obsessive, obsession is dangerous and uh, it's unhealthy. By all means, cycle. By all means, ride your bike. I don't think there's anything I enjoy more than getting out and riding my bike and for a couple of hours and I see a, a massive sport and people who, who do it for that reason but I think with kids just let them go out and uh, and let them enjoy it and you know sport is still probably one of the greatest things we can do and be but pro sport oh, no not not for me not for, not for my kids definitely not definitely not it's just it's unhealthy thanks Alan Capital Sports with Alan Moore 